The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. There might be a snow dump coming to the East Coast, but there is a dump of bad news coming for the auto industry. You have uh, the U.S. subprime auto lenders losing the most money on car loans at the highest rate since the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. And Kevin Tynan, Bloomberg Intelligence uh, automobile analyst for North America, put out a report today saying as bad as 2016 looked for car sales, 2017 is starting off worse. Let's bring him in. Kevin, uh, we appreciate you joining us. And you have this fantastic statistic that cars accounted for just 39% of total U.S. sales, the lowest percentage in history. But that might not be as bad as it gets, right? Oh, no, it's definitely going to get worse. Um, And I think what is different now, historically what you would see is, demand cycle in and out of cars to trucks and back and forth and um and some inventory adjustment with incentive spending and and then everything sort of levels out and and what's different this time is that the, the and and this was the sort of crux of the piece was that the the revenue generating segments are all trucks the top 3 are trucks and really pushing cars further and further down the list and why it's different this time is because the automakers see where that revenue is being generated and are actively unwinding their car positions, understanding that these segments are going to continue to shrink and shrink and shrink, and they will align supply with demand, which will be much lower. So rather than waiting for it to come back, they're actively getting out of those those segments, and it will make it impossible for cars to ever recover, regardless of gasoline prices. Kevin, has the automobile industry ever embarked on a similar strategy and found it to be wanting? Uh, no, uh, in the sense that we've, I think what's happening Wednesday with uh, cafe uh, rules and, and that. Uh, I tell people about this because this yeah. is very important to the overall disposition of an automaker's fleet. And right. uh, it's related to how many miles per gallon the fleet has to get. Right. And arguably, and, and if you look at some of the, the some of the graphs in the U.S., in North America, we've always wanted to buy trucks. There's a period between the two recessions that truck sales spiked as well. And the, t- the two times that, that car car sales recovered were cash for clunkers uh, and then when gasoline went above $4 a gallon in 2008. Uh, so we've always wanted to buy trucks, but this, this corporate average fuel economy standard has had sort of affecting the supply side of the equation, telling automakers you have to build these things to be compliant with these rules, whether or not the consumer wants them or not. And I think that's where we're in new territory that says 
those rules didn't really take into account the consumer. All, all the onus was on the manufacturers. Now, with production and, and the administration saying, we want you to produce in the U.S., I think the automakers are going back to President Trump and saying, we will produce in the U.S., but it has to be trucks. If it's going to be trucks, you have to help us on the cafe side. Well, so just to give us a little bit of perspective here, how much more expensive on average are trucks than cars? Well, if you look at it segment by segment, and I'll just take, uh, for example, the largest truck segment by volume, not by, not by revenue, but by volume is compact crossover SUVs. The largest car segment is compact car. So those two line up pretty nicely. Um, the difference in retail revenue is about $6,000 between the two. So you'd be in the low 20s for your average compact car. You'd be uh, in the mid to upper 20s for your average compact crossover. And I wanted to get back to the whole de- idea of subprime auto loans. Is there an equal proportion of subprime auto loans for people to buy trucks as well as cars? Is it more directed toward cars? I'm just basically trying to figure out, you know, because potentially that can mean that the losses are that much greater uh, on the trucks if somebody's unable to pay. Correct. Yeah, it would be because those transaction prices are higher. And really, I think what you're seeing when you look at the average retail transaction price in the U.S., it's continually going up because of this mix shift. Uh, But at the same time, it's also why we're seeing a lot of lease penetration because it creates affordability. So what you have is the subprime is pulling new buyers into the market, whether that's lower credit ratings, whether that's longer terms, uh, you know, bigger down payments, or however you have to get that consumer to that monthly payment that they can afford, because that's really how we buy uh, vehicles in the U.S. So if leasing makes more sense, we'll just, we'll basically rent you the car for part of the term and get you to that number that makes sense to you. So so there's a lot of different ways that, that the lenders and the automakers are getting people off the sidelines and into vehicles, and it's resulting in higher prices, a shift from into luxury, entry luxury more so than we had seen historically. But there's a lot of risk associated with that as well. Well, as much as I will miss my, uh, you know, the 1969 Chevrolet Camaro with the ZL1 engine, I'm sorry, Kenneth, I'm not going to be, Kevin, I'm not going to be able to, uh, you know, sort of look at it anymore with those feelings because everything will have disappeared, at least in that, that segment category. So who's, so who and where uh, are the, uh, the people who are going to make up the difference, who are going to actually continue that tradition? And then I want you to just uh, give your thoughts about U.S. auto companies may be doing cars outside the United States. Right. And and let me just say, I think in one of the areas on the car side that I think is reasonably protected is is that performance segment. And you look at, uh, you know, Tim Kaniskas at at, uh, Fiat Chrysler, who's a maniac in a good way, you know, and you have Hellcats and Demons and Scat Packs. Well, I'm glad because I was, you know, I was looking at a 2017 Camaro uh, 2SS, you know, the 50th anniversary edition. Yeah, those. I think you're okay there. I think that that the performance stuff, and even if you look at Cadillac, the V series stuff, and even in the luxury segments, I think performance is per, per, is a little bit protected. People will always want that, and the physics just don't work as well in trucks. So there, I think you're okay. I think it's it's the garden variety, the sort of commodity cars. Uh, that how really about the Lincoln in China? Yeah, you know, and I think that that uh, markets outside of the U.S. 
we'll adjust to things and tastes are a little bit different, uh, whether it's weather, congestion. There's issues that go into it to what the consumer prefers. But we're also seeing globally, you know, even in Europe, we're seeing a, a mixed shift to trucks because we can do more with fuel economy, light weighting. We're getting better driving dynamics out of truck bodies than we than we ever have. And it's it's helping shift away from cars to trucks. Thanks very much for illuminating all this for us and uh, talking cars. Kevin Tynan, he's our senior, a senior autos analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and you can follow him on Twitter at KevTynan10. Lisa Abramowitz, we've been learning a lot about artificial intelligence, robots. You know, I think that 3D printing can also be included in that particular list because there is a huge conference that is going to take place beginning tomorrow at the Javits Center, and it is uh, Inside 3D Printing. It's the conference and the expo. It's got 38 events. It's the largest event worldwide. And get this, the presentation, one of them is by Dr. Oren Tepper, and he uses 3D printing in plastic and reconstructive surgery. Well, to learn more about all of these things, we want to bring in Tyler Benster, general partner at Asimov Ventures in Seattle, Washington. Also, Shamil Hargovin, co-founder and CEO of Weave, spelled W-I-I-V-V, might not be exactly intuitive, uh, in San Diego, uh, California. So, Tyler, I want to start with you. What do you think is going to be the hottest development at this 3D printing conference this year? So it's a really exciting year for 3D printing. We've been saying for a long time in industry how 3D printing is going to go mainstream and keyword they're going to. And I think 2017 is the year where we actually are seeing this happen. So we have a few new developments. Um, on the medical side, as highlighted earlier with Dr. Oren, uh, incredible new developments going on in implants, orthopedic implants, companies like Additive Orthopedics. We have uh, wonderful uh, new technologies that are allowing uh, doctors to literally save lives and separate conjoined twins um, via surgical planning and actual surgical cutting guides. And then we have this whole new movement in metals where we're finally starting to see this transition from 3D printing is a prototyping technology to want to finish good production. And I know that we're really, really delighted to have Shamil on here with us, who has uh, really been actually practicing finished good production in the flesh. I got to note that, uh, Shamil, before you answer to, to the details of Weave, is that you are the, comp you're the uh, CEO of the startup company Weave, and you're trying to make it happen, and you're wearing the suit. And Tyler, who happens to just work at Asimov Ventures as a partner, he's the money guy, he is wearing the Stanford hoodie. I, I mean, I, the contrast cannot be... Uh, better for, for the setup. Well, so I think you, you're on the bright path. Well, it's, it's not every <laughs> you know. day a, a startup CEO like me gets to get pulled up to New York to give this uh, conversation. Well, so I was going to say, and you, well, you raised over $5 million in a Series A financing just recently, right? Yes, sir. All right. Tell us what you're going to do with the money. And uh, you've brought some things along. Custom fit 3D printed insoles. Yes, yes. Uh, we are... Uh, what I would say, actually doing it today, uh, which is manufacturing in America, 3D printed final product. And specifically, we're working with custom footwear, uh, which you order by measuring your feet using your smartphone. And from there, we are uh, able to send you your product in under seven days. Uh, and what I'm here to tell you is for the footwear and apparel industry, like, like many other industries, made in America is starting to make business sense again. 
in order to offer consumers the kinds of products that they expect and want. Can I, can I just ask, Shamil, what's the difference between a machine that is automated and, you know, just that's maybe directed by one person somewhere, at least overseen, uh, which we've seen for years, and 3D printing? Yeah, and 3D printing it essentially allows you to take the complexity away from the human uh, and, and, it, and it digitally is able to make the complex custom parts of products that you need. Uh, and what we do is we marry that with, with sort of traditional manufacturing to make what we called hybrid products. Okay. And then, Tyler, I wanted to ask you, you, you talked about how this is the year that 3D printing is going to go mainstream. What gives you confidence to say that? Well, I think if we just trace where the investment in R&D has been going into, we've seen an explosion on the venture capital side. In 2016, we had more than a quarter billion dollars flow into startups, um, which was really outstripping the public markets for the first time. Um, we also have seen an incredible increase in M&A activity with GE snatching up to the largest metal companies. Um, we've seen a large uptick in investments in that sector. And I think that we're starting to see this growth really being driven by the bottom up. If we look at what's happened like with Stratasys' outlook for 2017 and uh, the public market's reaction, I think that the markets are in agreement that a lot of this growth is being driven by the small disruptive players that are moving quickly. Well, you mentioned Stratasys, and I mean, boy, if you're an investor in Stratasys, you have watched it uh, move high and then move low. And in fact, they just released their results, I guess it was on March the 7th. And uh, while the results were great for the previous uh, time period, their guidance, you know, they were not giving the kind of guidance. I think the, the stock ended up down about 9% just that particular day. So it's been rough going uh, for them. Uh, Shamil, I want you to just talk a little bit about your background because this was a Kickstarter campaign, right? I mean, that's how Correct. it all started. And now what? You managed to purchase eSouls. I love this. eSouls is a company that has a database of foot scans. Tell us what that gives you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, to really build out this vision, uh, what we're seeing in the market is the big players like Apple, Intel, and Google are spending, Microsoft included, are spending hundreds of millions of dollars in 3D scan. And they're going to bring this to your phone very soon. And then you've got Carbon and Hewlett Packard and Stratasys and 3D Systems working on the printer engines. Now, why this eSoul's acquisition was important for us is it meant that we now have a bigger database of 3D scans that we can feed to train our technology to take that scan and turn it into an STL file more efficiently. That's the file format most prevalent in 3D printing today. And so that's really important. Who knew that 50,000 scans of 3D scans of your feet would be worth that much money? (laughs) Well, well, Tyler, though, I wanted to ask that. That brings me to the next question, which is where does the real money lie? Is it in the programming behind the 3D printers? Is it in the actual machines uh, that can take the technology and make it into uh, make it into action? Where does it go? So today, it's very much on the materials side. It's the razor razor blades model, where if you look at the, the margins in industry, we see margins as high as a thousand percent on the raw feedstock, which is pretty incredible considering most manufacturing margins. However, I think in the long term, as the patent landscape has started to shake out and competition has really increased, we're going to see the long term margins on 3D printing drop to about two to three percent which is the manufacturing standard. I think that much of the value will be captured, as we've seen in electronics, by the design. So companies are really going to be able to command a high premium if they have a proprietary sort of vertically integrated end-to-end experience that is really IP-driven design. If I may just echo what Tyler said, you know, one thing hasn't changed. 
making a product that people want and then marketing that product, that, that hasn't changed fundamentally. So for us as we've, we've even learned that as we've gone about what we're doing, it was one thing to figure out the technology, but it was another thing to build the market and have people realize you can actually get these end products. And so having the brand in the, in, in the market and having a product people want is key. Thank you so much for joining us. This is really interesting. Uh, Tyler Benster, general partner at Asimov Ventures in Seattle, Washington, here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Also with us, Shamil Hargovin, co-founder and CEO of Weave in San Diego, California. I am so excited about our uh, next guest. He is a longtime uh, person who I have looked up to tremendously. Cass Sunstein, Harvard professor, uh, Bloomberg View contributor, and author of Hashtag Republic, Divided Democracy in the Age of Social Media. Uh, he comes to us now. Cass, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this, the premise of this book is fascinating, that basically the new challenge to democracy is the way that increasing technology is allowing people to sort of live in their own bubbles without getting exposure to one another. Can you explain what drew you to this and, and how severe uh, this problem was, as you found? Well, I guess I've been drawn to it since the beginning of the Internet when you could see that the uh, capacity for people to sort themselves into little kind of mirrors where they're just looking at mirrors of one oneself and, or people who have the same view as oneself, at least, uh, that capacity just uh, skyrocketed. And in the recent past, we've seen it in the elections, of course, but also in political discussion, that with Facebook and Twitter and, of course, with your ability to just uh, scoot from from one uh, uh, congenial view to another, you can just hear topics and points of view that make you feel like you're in a cozy little cocoon. And that's uh, comforting, cocoons are, but it's also a form of prison for individuals and for democracy, it's, it's a danger. Uh, Mr. Sunstein, I'm wondering if you could just uh, give us a little bit of your uh, historical perspective, because I note that you know in September 2009, you were confirmed as uh, the director of the White House OMB Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Uh, this is an important uh, agency, and I'm wondering if you could just describe its work and what you see happening to the current uh, Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, in as much as President Donald Trump has uh, asked for agency-wide reviews to reduce regulations. Sure. So the goal of the office, which goes back to President Reagan, is to oversee environmental regulation, safety regulation, labor, health, lots of stuff, including some national security stuff, and to make sure basically it's consistent with the law, that the uh, costs are under control, and that the benefits justify the costs. So it's uh, not the most visible office, but it is an office that has a pretty central role in affecting things that affect people every day. Um, under uh, President Trump, it could go in two different directions. We're still at early days. Uh, there are some signs of uh, kind of uh, uh, making sure that if we're going to be issuing new regulations in an economically challenging time, they really survive some sort of hurdle of, of justification. And that's accompanied by an idea. If you're going to issue one, you have to uh, get rid of two. Now, in principle, that's not the best idea in the world, because you may have one good one and not two bad ones to get rid of. But in practice, uh, 
the people in the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs, I think they can make it work, certainly for a year or two. So one direction is just have a lot of discipline about new regulations going out, uh, and I would favor that. That's continuous with a lot of things I uh, worked on when I was there. And another direction which isn't so good is what has been referred to as the deconstruction of the administrative state. Probably some people nod their heads when they hear that word, even though it comes from a French literary theorist who uh, the critics of the administrative state don't like so much, the French literary people. Uh, but I think nodding the head isn't a very good idea because there's uh, safety regulation that prevent uh, deaths on the highways. There's safety regulation that make sure our food is safe. And there's uh, safety regulation that makes sure that our air is clean to breathe and deconstruction of the administrative state wouldn't be the best idea. So there's a long way of saying uh, Trump administration could go in one of two directions and the first direction isn't so bad. You know, uh, I want to go back to the point that you were making about people sort of seeing uh, themselves in mirrors or seeing their ideas just in mirrors and how that, I mean, arguably has dictated what we are seeing right now in the current political cycle. Uh, that's my extrapolation, <laughs> not necessarily uh, yours, but uh, but I'm wondering how much are you seeing that in academia? Because, you know, people think of uh, institutions, academic institutions being a bastion of, of thought and, and, and conversation, but often there isn't a lot of diversity of views even among the professors. Well, I don't see it a whole lot in academia, I confess, but that this may be my limited travels. So I spent a long time at the University of Chicago, and if you go through a day without hearing 20 different views, you're probably just staying in your office. Uh, and the the universities, even though they're often reputed to be uh, echo chamber areas, uh, my own experience, as I say, is, is that they just aren't. So uh, some of the places that are supposed to be left to center in kind of Obama territory, there are people who think that Obama was awful and, you know, and that the Trump direction is much better and we need some conservatives in charge. And there are places that are supposed to be conservative bastions where there are people who say, you know what, uh, the Democrats have some really good ideas. Right. So I think it's a problem in the political domain where people self-sort into little cocoons and they regard their fellow citizens as uh, traitors or, or enemies or you know, deeply confused or in the grip of lies. That seems to me a much more serious problem than what the professors are doing. Do you have any hope that the situation will improve where people will seek out uh, views that disagree with their own? Well, one of the great things about our country is that uh, we're not hopeless, and that's meant as a pun. It's first we're we're not pessimistic, and second we have capacity to put the uh, future in our own hands. That's what uh, we the people did a long time ago, and we've done that repeatedly since. So the fact is that what our communications world is is if it's a world of self-sorting where we, uh, you know, just learn a single thing about civil rights, let's say that may not be true, or at least isn't the full picture, or we learn a bunch of different things, depends on our own choices, both as individuals and uh, people are providing the stuff. So I think that uh, there are some good signs that Facebook is reassessing its uh, newsfeed. Its newsfeed is really an echo chamber generator, in my view, and it's reassessing that. So uh, we're going to see some changes on the individual side and on the provider side in the next few years. Thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, professor Cass Sunstein is a Bloomberg View contributor. He's also a professor at Harvard University. His new book is entitled Hashtag Republic, Divided Democracy in the Age of Social Media.
shares of Mobileye are higher by nearly 30%. This comes after the announcement that Intel will pay $15 billion for this technology company. Uh, it provides vision-based advanced driver assistance systems. Uh, this is everything from lane and vehicle detection, adaptive cruise control, traffic sign recognition. Here to tell us more, Anand Srinivasan, our senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He never takes his hands off the wheel. Anand, uh, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time, I know, on your well-earned holiday. But I want to get your thoughts on what is it about a company that has $360 million in sales getting bought for $15 billion? Can't you do a lot with $15 billion? You certainly can. You can build a new fab and then some. Um, but look, this is the future of semiconductors, right? I mean, if you look at the handset market, it's slowing. If you look at the PC market, it's slowing. The server market is more competitive, and then that's slowing as well. So everybody's all um, uh, driving fast. Um, towards uh, the auto semiconductor market with the promise that it is large, it is profitable, and it is fast-growing. Now, with autos, there's a special tweak in, in that you, you, whatever design wins that you have, if you get into a car with a new system, you don't see revenues for a couple more years because it has to be tested extensively before a products are shipped out. It's very different from consumer electronics. So... The thirteen, um, the the fifteen billion in revenue that they're paying forty three times trailing four month sales, uh, it's obviously growing very fast. But the true growth potential of that is not going to be visible for several years, um, and that's part of the issue because we're not going to be able to see it. The gross margins are better than that of the Intel uh, of Intel, and it's. Um, it's in a segment that you can't easily design your way into. So M&A is, uh, is the smart route. And yeah. Mobilize is a great company. But the question is, you know, you're right. Uh, did, they, did they overpay? We, we won't know, to be quite honest, for five years. Well, so Anand, can you give us a sense of just how competitive the landscape is for becoming sort of the data provider or the system provider for autonomous cars. I mean, it seems like uh, Intel is trying to position itself to be the number one provider of that type of uh, of data system and uh, technolo technological system. But, but who are its competitors and uh, what's the sort of market share potentially look like down the line? Yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's a great question. And um, it, it's got a cloudy two-part answer which is one is that the architecture of technology in cars itself is changing. Companies like NVIDIA and now Intel are pitching for, quote-unquote, um, the God box or the one system to rule it all in the auto, right? So they want all auto technologies to coalesce around one intelligent system. It's artificially intelligent. It talks to the data center and will take you from point A to point B with as little human intervention as possible. That's the utopian scenario five, ten years out. What exists now is a bunch of disparate systems uh, with as many as 30 to 110 um, microcontroller subsystems, anything from checking your oil levels to your tire pressure to, um, to seeing what the temperature is outside. And these systems don't necessarily all talk to one another, and there's no central um, intelligent control point. So... That's what it is today. Companies like NVIDIA, potentially Tesla, potentially Intel now are all coalescing towards the future. It's a much slower market to turn, um, particularly in advanced driver assistance systems that um, 
that uh, that everybody is pitching. The the number of things that we need to do between here and the truly driverless car is is many, 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 many fold. But here's the flip side. You know, we sell roughly about 80 million cars um, a year, and and each of those cars contains somewhere in the $380 of silicon. That could go substantially higher, two, three, four, five times higher, based on whether it's a driverless car or um, it's a semi-driverless car. Um, and, and so that's the utopian scenario, and it becomes very, very sticky. It's high-margin business. It's sticky business. Um, it's not as volatile as the consumer electronics, and that's the Intel pitch. Here's another utopian scenario. How about if you go public three years ago, you raise a billion dollars, and you have a market cap of a little bit more than $5 billion. Fast forward three years, you sell out for $15 billion. Um, pretty uh, nice chunk of change for the founders. Um, if it's so great, why are they selling? Look, I, I mean, there's a point to be made with respect to scale. If you look at um, the semiconductor industry in general, it has become one of scale in terms of design, one of scale in terms of factories, and one in, in terms of touch. Small semiconductor companies in most spaces will become um, an oxymoron. It's going to be very, very tough to exist. If you don't have scale... Um, you're going to find it very hard to compete with the likes of NXP, which is now being acquired by Qualcomm, uh, which, in fact, bought Freescale, which is the number one auto supplier. So um, you're going to find it very, very difficult to compete with these behemoths right. from an R&D perspective. And for Mobileye, their thinking is that I get a big R&D partner with Intel. Right. Anand Srinivasan, thank you so much for joining us. He's Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.